Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, August the 3rd, 2022. It is currently 1.55 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, I I thought I was going to give myself uh, a break for an hour or two, but I decided, you know what? We've made it this far. Let's just turn around and jump right back into this discussion. Let's not waste any time. Let's see if we can bring this discussion to some kind of conclusion as soon as possible, so then maybe we can move on to some other things today. Um, Now, that does not mean that I think that this is not an important discussion. No, I just believe it's an important discussion, and I would just like to continue the conversation immediately instead of waiting. Um, I And because I don't like, I don't want this to be, you know, hey, we, we I, you know, I wait a couple of hours and then come back to this, and then we can't get to other things. I just feel like, hey, you know what, we, we kind of are, we, we kind of we kind of got started, so instead of delaying it, let's just press on and see if we can reach some kind of important conclusion on this very important topic. Now, if you haven't been with us, let me explain what's going on. We started a series. It really wasn't the original plan, but we started a series looking at the reality of the of the disunity of Christianity, the the disunity within Christianity, the disunity of Christianity. I don't know the exact way maybe you would prefer for me to say it, but I like to state it the disunity of Christianity because Christianity is divided. There is so much disunity within it that you can almost define Christianity by the reality of its disunity. Christianity is defined by the fact that Christianity is so divided, so many different groups, so many different doctrinal claims, so many theological streams, so many different perspectives. It's just known for its constant fighting and bickering and arguing and everyone making their own truth claims that are exclusive and that those truth claims can call out, they, they condemn, they not only call out others, they condemn others. That's just the reality of it. And we cannot deny that reality. That is a reality that every Christian has to struggle with. That Christianity is divided and disunity reigns. Christianity is more known for its disunity than it is any perceived unity or pretend unity that we want to put forth. That is just the reality. But in light of that reality, everyone who is a Bible student, everyone who is a believer, everyone who believes the Bible is the inspired word of God, we are confronted with these words of Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 21. These, This is the prayer of Jesus. This is what Jesus prayed. John chapter 17, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, And I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed that we would be one and that this unity would be very instrumental in convincing the world of the truth of the gospel. 
that by them seeing the unity of believers, that would be critical to them believing in the gospel. But the problem is the world doesn't see that unity. The world doesn't see that unity in any way, shape, or form. In fact, anyone who's not saved, who happens to be on social media and just watch Christians argue and fight and debate one another over and over and over and over and over and over again, the world would be convinced that Christians don't agree on anything, which would actually be pretty close to the truth. So how do you reconcile that in your own mind? Now, we've looked at some, we've, this is part five. So in the previous four parts, we've looked at lots of discussions, lots of different perspectives. I've, I've given you kind of my own perspective. But what we're doing, what we started in part four is I decided to just grab a random sermon. I just did a Google search, John 17, 21. The first sermon that popped up, I hit download. I grabbed the audio. I did not listen to it in advance. And we started reviewing a sermon. Turns out the sermon is by Phil Johnson from Grace Life. I believe Grace Life Church. He's also obviously connected to Grace to You and John MacArthur. Um, I do have some an unfortunate history with Phil Johnson where clearly I, I, there wasn't unity. Let's just say there was disunity. Let's just say there wasn't much graciousness, love, compassion, mercy. There was just an attack upon me simply because of a, uh, well, I wouldn't even know that. I don't even think there was an actual disagreement, but it doesn't matter. I was attacked and well, then his followers attacked me and it was a wonderful experience. Let me tell you. Uh, now I, if I would have known that this was by Phil Johnson, I probably would have not chosen this sermon, but remember, that's what I love to do is just grab audio and then review it in real time. That's where it doesn't come across as rehearsed. Now, so far, He's not offered us any real solution to the fact that Jesus prayed for unity. He has told us in the sermon and the part that we have reviewed so far is that unity should be the highest priority of every Christian. And that unity is the way the world is convinced of the truth of the gospel. Then he began to disagree, <laughs> which is somewhat humorous, with anyone who calls for an ecumenical, an ecumenical kind of unity. No, no, no. There can't be an ecumenical unity that compromises doctrine. We have to stand for doctrine and we have to stand for theology. He also condemned, uh, and the, the Roman Catholic idea, he, he, he almost kind of, I won't say mocking it, but he condemned the idea that Catholics would say the way we achieve this unity is that we have to go back to the Roman Catholic Church and surrender to the Pope or submit to the Pope. He's like, no, we're not going to do that. What he doesn't seem to realize or he seems to miss the irony of the fact that, well, Protestants basically say the same thing. Catholics say we need to come back to the Catholic Church and submit to the Pope. And Protestants are like, no, you need to come to our church and submit to our Pope, right? You've got to, you got to, we need to return to, well, I, John MacArthur and surrender to him or, or to whichever Protestant Pope. And Protestants get mad when I say that, but let's just, that's just the way it works. If you disagree with MacArthur on Lordship salvation, he's probably going to call into question your salvation. So you have to surrender to him. So the Protestant world does the same thing. We have our own Pope's and they declare a dogma, and if you disagree with their dogma, then you are considered anathema, and you you are you are basically you're not viewed as sa saved. So the same thing happens in the Protestant world. It's no different. 
So we just have to acknowledge that. So he still hasn't really explained how this unity is achieved in John 17, 21. We're going to go back to the sermon and see if we can find out exactly what this unity is, how it's achieved, because according to him, this should be our highest priority. And according to Phil Johnson, this unity is what proves the wor- to the world the truth of the gospel. So then how does this, how is this unity achieved? Let's see if we can find out. Here we go. And he said, how dare you say that? So don't miss what he's really saying. He claims he wants unity without a superficial glossing over of crucial doctrinal differences, and yet he cries foul when somebody wants to be specific about a doctrine that is at the very heart of the gospel message. The unity he wants is actually the same kind of unity the Roman Catholic Church has sought for hundreds of years. It's a unity where everyone who professes to be a Christian has to yield implicit obedience to papal authority, and where even individual conscience is ultimately subject to the Roman Catholic Church. That's his idea of unity. Now, he, he now he's quoting from a Catholic apologist. And he's basically making an argument against their argument about unity and how it's achieved. But I want to make sure you understand the same thing happens in the Protestant world. You've got to go along with their particular group, their particular theology, their particular doctrine, or you are considered possibly not saved outside the body of Christ, or you're a heretic, you're an apostate. Catholics would say, nope, you have to surrender yourself to magisterial magisterial or papal authority. And Protestants were like, nope, you have to basically agree with us and agree with our authority. Because our authority, according to Protestants, would be is because we understand the Bible right. So everyone does, plays the same game. It's just everyone says that they're right. They have the right understanding, and you must go along with them. And if you do not, you are anathema. You are, you are condemned. You are not part of the true body of Christ. I mean, you, it happens all the time. Just, just watch on social media. If, if you disagree with their favorite preacher, that probably not even say, probably not even say, that's an apostate, false doctrine. You can't try, don't listen to them. It's just, it's just never ending within Christianity. So it's just funny, a sermon that's supposedly telling us how important unity is, almost complaining about the Catholic idea that you've got to come and surrender to their authority, not even acknowledging how the same thing happens within the Protestant world. Let's see where they go with this. He declines to state plainly who he believes is to blame for fracturing the organizational unity of Christianity, but it's pretty clear that he wouldn't be predisposed to blame a church whose spiritual authority he regards as infallible. He's not going to say the Pope was wrong or that the Catholic Church was wrong. And since the Catholic Church itself officially considers Protestantism to be schismatic, Fournier's own position isn't really difficult to deduce. Although he manages to sound like he's sympathetic and amiable toward evangelicals, it's clear he believes that as long as people like you and me remain outside the Church of Rome, we are guilty of sins that destroy the unity Christ prayed for. Now, that's just a Catholic perspective. The truth is, Every cult and every denomination that claims to be the one true church has a similar perspective on unity. The Jehovah- and see, I, that, 
Every church has a similar argument, not just cults, not just ones who claim they're the only one. Again, you can have someone like, say, from a MacArthur perspective on lordship salvation. If you disagree with lordship salvation, you are almost immediately accused of perverting the gospel, teaching a false gospel. Therefore, you're not saved. It's the same thing. Everyone does it to some level. Now, someone asked me a question. They asked me this question. Uh, do you think there was more unity early on in part because there were few in number and under intense persecution? They had to band together, so to speak. And as we have uh, so much more freedom, we have more room for division. Maybe I'm way off, but just a thought. I, I think there was a possibility that there was, well, for, put it this way. There was more unity early on because you had at least some sense of apostolic authority. Apostolic authority, the apostolic authority defined truth. There you go. Then you had the early church operating in some kind of a unified way where you see the seven ecumenical councils where they come together. You bring in represent representatives of different churches. They all come together. Then a dogmatic theological statement is given, and then you must believe this or you are anathema. And then why I, I think that I, I, there's hard to explain maybe why that unit, it just seemed that there was a structure in place that seemed to lead to more of a unified approach early on. And then over time, you could argue that that structural, that structure that was in place corrupted, fell apart, which went then ultimately led to the Protestant Reformation. You, you could possibly make that argument. Maybe fewer in number, possibly. You can't, you can't say that did not contribute in some way, shape, or form. I just think that there was a structure in place. And then the structure, over time, corrupted. The, 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 the institution, in a sense, corrupted. And then, well, that led to the Protestant Reformation. And then there were unintended consequences from the Protestant Reformation. Again, the Protestant Reformation took the authority from the institution and was to place it and to make the claim that the, the authority belonged to the Bible, but in reality, the authority went from the institution to the individuals, which then led to, well, spiritual anarchy and chaos. That's the unintended consequences of the Protestant Reformation. People get mad when I say that, I, I, but it's just, if you don't uh, believe that there were negative uh, unintended consequences flowing from the Protestant Reformation, you're not giving an accurate understanding of church history. There, there's some massive bad things went down as a result. Because the authority came to the individual. We try to say, no, it's the Bible. No, it's the individual. The individual takes the Bible, reads it. The individual interprets it and then says, this is the right interpretation. And anyone who disagrees with my interpretation is wrong. And your church is wrong. And now we are the right church and you are the wrong church. Just like they condemn Protestants, they condemn Catholics all day for saying, you have to believe with us, you have to listen to us, and if you don't listen to us, you're in the wrong. Well, now he's pointing out other groups. Every Protestant group does it to some level. Of his witnesses believe they represent the only legitimate church, and that all others who claim to be Christians are schismatic. Uh, they believe that the unity of the visible church was actually shattered by the Nicene Council in the, in the 4th century. And meanwhile, you have the Eastern Orthodox Church that claims the Church of Rome was being schismatic when Rome asserted papal supremacy. And to this day, Orthodox Christians, Eastern Orthodox Christians, insist that 
Their church, not the Roman Catholic Church, is the church Christ founded. And that would make Roman Catholicism schismatic and in the very same sense that Rome accuses Protestants of being schismatic. One typical Orthodox website says this. This is an Eastern Orthodox website. Quote, The Orthodox Church is the Christian Church. The Orthodox Church is not a sect or a denomination. We are the family of Christian communities established by the apostles and disciples whom Jesus sent out to proclaim the good news to the world and by their successors through the ages. Now, think about what all these groups have in common. They view the church primarily as a visible earthly organization, and therefore they cannot conceive of any kind of true spiritual unity that might transcend denominational lines. Okay, now this is going to give us the clue of how he's going to try to get around this. All right. And this is very, very common within the Protestant world. Okay, the Protestant world understands there is not going to be any visible institutional unity because there are different groups, they're all, they're all divided, and that's never going to come back together. And any, group, any attempt to try to come back to one institution would either mean going back to Roman Catholicism or possibly compromising doctrinal distinct, distinctives and doctrinal differences. So the Protestant answer is always, no, 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 it's not an institutional unity. It's not we're all one and one church. No, it's not one church. It's not one institution. It's not one visible manifestation of unity. No, the unity that Jesus is talking about is a spiritual unity. So the way this works is we will never be unified in any meaningful way and any even visible practical way. Here's how it works. If you claim to be a Christian and I claim to be a Christian and you're truly a Christian and I'm truly a Christian, then we're unified in our spiritual union it doesn't ever manifest itself in any meaningful tangible way and that somehow according to many protestants that is sufficient see that that meets john 17 see jesus prayed that we would be one well we're one in this spiritual unity now the only problem with that is first that would seem to contradict the idea that unity is the is the way it proves to the world the truth of the gospel. This spiritual unity cannot be seen. It is not visible. So I don't know how that would meet this. If Jesus is saying be one and so that the world will see it and the world will know the truth of the gospel, this spiritual unity doesn't achieve that. But this is, the only, this is the only answer the Protestant world has is that, hey, you're a believer, I'm a believer, therefore we're unified. Now, we disagree, and I think you're a heretic, and you think I'm a heretic, and I think your church is wrong, and you think my church is wrong, but hey, 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 we're, we're, we're unified. It, it doesn't, it's, it's a meaningless unity. It's just this, we're, we're unified in some invisible body that never meets, that doesn't have a doctrinal statement, that never comes in contact with one another, but we're somehow unified. But please note, I want to make it very clear, we don't even agree within the Protestant world who is actually in the body of Christ. We don't even agree on that. It's a Lutheran who was baptized as a baby, who believes that baptism was brought about regeneration, that they were saved when that water was sprinkled upon them. Are they saved? 
Well, many within the Protestant world will say, absolutely not. Baptismal regeneration is not the gospel. That's a false gospel. They are not saved. Others will say, yes, we don't even agree on who is in the body of Christ. So how is this spiritual unity mean anything when we don't even agree on who actually is spiritually unified? They regard all other denominations as schismatic. They're rifts in the organizational unity of the church because they're not part of our group. And if organizational unity were what Christ was praying for, then the very existence of denominations, in fact, would be a sin and a shame. That's why the Orthodox website insists orthodoxy is not a denomination. They don't want to be thought of as a denomination. Now, if that understanding of the principle of unity is correct, then whichever organization could legitimately claim to be the church that was founded by Christ and the apostles could legitimately claim to be the one true church and all the others would be guilty of schism, regardless of any other doctrinal or biblical considerations. You'd have to set doctrine aside completely and say, no matter what they teach, if that's the organization that was founded by the apostles, that's the one true church. And that is precisely why many Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have focused their rhetoric on this issue of unity. They can't defend their doctrine as easily as they can defend their historical roots. Both of them sincerely believe that if they can establish the claim that they and no one else are the one true church instituted by Christ then all of the Protestants' complaints about doctrine and church polity and ecclesiastical corruption and all of our complaints about that then become moot because it doesn't really matter. If they can successfully sell their notion that the unity of John seventeen twenty one is primarily unity that is identifiable by an earthly organization, then they should in effect be able to convince members of denominational and independent churches to reunite with the mother church, regardless of whether she's right or wrong on other matters. And in fact, they've persuaded many people to do that, most recently including Hank Hanegraaff, who joined the Orthodox Church earlier this year. No one today is pleading more eloquently for that kind of organizational unity than the Pope. But if you think that plea for unity sounds warm and charitable... Remember that it comes from an organization with a long history of enforcing its will by inquisition. When overtures for unity are being made by someone who claims to represent the one true church, the call for unity turns out to be nothing but a kinder, gentler way of demanding submission to the mother church's doctrine and denominational authority. Nevertheless, in recent years, Many gullible Protestants have been drawn either to Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy by this idea, by this claim that one or the other represents the only church Christ founded or recognizes. And most of these unsuspecting proselytes have bought the notion that the unity Christ prayed for is primarily an outward organizational kind of unity. And so once you swallow that argument, It's natural to conclude that whichever church has the most convincing pedigree must be the only church capable of achieving the unity Christ prayed for. And and if you think what Christ prayed for here was organizational unity, and if you think at the end of the day a person's doctrinal convictions really aren't very important, 
the fragmentation of Protestants into so many competing denominations becomes a powerful argument in favor of Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy. And let's be honest, this is not a matter we can gloss over or dismiss lightly. We need to understand what Jesus was praying for, what true unity looks like, what we can do in the words of Ephesians 4 to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Again, as I said earlier, that's a duty. It's not only the natural tendency that we have as believers, it's a duty to maintain that unity. And so... Okay, and I think that that's complete garbage to say that's our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to bring unity. It's not true. If that was the natural tendency, 2,000 years of church history, we should be the most unified group of people on the face of the earth, and we're not. So it's not the natural tendency. The natural tendency of believers are, is not towards unity because we have 2,000 years of church history showing that it always leads to disunity and division and fighting and making more... Uh, ultimate truth claims that are different than anybody else's truth claims. We are, it's not our, our natural tendency is not to unity. You don't, you don't believe me? Open up your New Testament and start reading. The disciples would always at RB start arguing with one another and no, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, you're the great. The, the, the disciples could not get along. And then you immediately in, in the book of Acts, you've got problems and divisions within the church and they had to have the, the council at Jerusalem trying to fix some of their problems. There was disunity there. And then immediately you start reading in the New Testament, the church at Corinth divided, fighting. There were problems in every, almost every letter written to a church in the New Testament was written to churches where there were problems and almost in every case there was some kind of division and there was some kind of disunity. It is not the natural tendency for believers to be unified because our natural tendency is to exalt self and and to make claims that, that we're right and that other people are wrong. It's no, it's not submission, unity, get along is not the natural tendency of the believer. And if you claim that, then you're, you're, you're just denying 2000 years of church history and you're denying the reality of what probably what's going on in your own life. So I completely disagree that that's the natural tendency. So what is this unity? Clearly what he's going to go for, he, he's making the claim, it's not an institutional unity. So it's not, well, we all have to be in the same church. Nope. We can have as many different denominations as possible. We can have, we could have 30,000 and that would still be okay. Jesus prayer could still be answered because what he's going to look for is some kind of superficial spiritual unity that supposedly fits this. But let me make it very clear. He earlier in the sermon claimed that the unity that Jesus called for would be a unity that would convince the lost world of the truth of the gospel. Therefore, the unity that he has already claimed Jesus prayed for would be an outward unity that could be seen. So this no, we're unified in the invisible body of Christ doesn't suffice because the world doesn't see that. So he, he's, he, he, he called for a kind of unity that has to be seen by the world so that it will convince the world of the truth of the gospel. But what he's ultimately going to deliver in this sermon is a superficial spiritual unity that nobody actually sees, nobody actually witnesses, and it's ab absolutely 
meaningless and useless because it doesn't have any actual pro, uh, uh, impact on anything. Well, let, let's see if, the, if that's the direction. Let's see if I'm wrong. This morning, I want to look at four truths that are woven in and around Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17. And we'll talk about the danger of division, the duty of separation, the deceptiveness of false unity, and the dynamic of spiritual unity. And I'll repeat those several times if you want to get them in your notes. But let's first talk about the danger of division. The danger of division. As I said, this is not an issue Protestants should sweep aside lightly. It is quite true that to provoke division in the body of Christ is sinful. The Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians for having a sectarian spirit. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 12 and 13. He starts that epistle with this issue. And then later in the epistle, he adds this. For when one of you says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. That's a strong rebuke because they were breaking up into these competing groups. And he's saying there that breaching the unity of Christians is a demonic sin, so much so that divisive people are not to be tolerated in the church. You know that in Matthew 18, Christ laid out the principles of church discipline, and he outlined a series of four steps that churches should go through in calling sinning brethren to repentance. But Paul said later that when somebody is purposely creating discord and dissent, that whole process, that four-step process is to be accelerated. Here's what he wrote in Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In other words, you foreshorten the process to just two or three steps if you've got a factious person causing division. So it's fair to ask then, if divisiveness is such a serious sin, why are there so many different denominations? That's a fair question. You know, the Protestant Reformation gave rise to Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Anglicanism, Congregationalism, Methodism, Episcopalianism, Plymouth Brethren, the Open Brethren, the Closed Brethren, the Church of Christ, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of God, the Assemblies of God, Holiness Churches, Pentecostal Churches, Dutch Reformed Churches, Christian Reformed Churches, Protestant Reformed Churches, Baptists, Reformed Baptists, Sovereign Grace Baptists, Landmark Baptists, Independent Baptists, American Baptists, Southern Baptists, Free Will Baptists, General Baptists, Regular Baptists, Particular Baptists, and then my favorite, the Strict and Particular Baptists. And, and that list really only scratches. And what's funny is everyone laughs. <laughs> everyone laughs. But we laugh at it. But what's the solution? See, it, 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 you can he, like you just naming all of those groups. It's absolutely insane. So what we have to do is we have to go. Well, we're never going to have an institutional unity. So he's going to push forth some idea. Uh, Okay, uh, someone just said, didn't he just give an argument that the unity is indeed congregational with the dis discipline point he made? Now, I, now that's a good point. 
this is this is a good point. If if he's arguing, okay. So l- l- let's try to follow this through. On one hand, he's argued that this is not an institutional unity. This is not an institutional unity. Uh, it's a spiritual unity. He seemed to be, that's the direction he seems to be going. But then in a roundabout way, by looking to 1 Corinthians, going to Matthew 18, going to Titus, he is looking, he is making an argument for an institutional unity within at least a local congregation, right? So that would be an institutional unity. The only problem is he then demonstrates there's so many different institutions that there can't be unity amongst all of these different groups. So there cannot be an institutional unity amongst all the different groups, but there has to be some kind of institutional unity among each individual group. Because, well, that that you have church discipline, and if you have someone who's causing a faction within the church, they've got to be put out. So is it a is it a spiritual unity or is it an institutional unity as at least within one congregation? I, I don't know. I don't know, but I just find it interesting that he mentions all of those groups and everyone starts laughing. Everyone starts laughing, and but they're all going to walk away somehow convinced that when Jesus said, Hey, let's all be one, that somehow, even though there's a thousand different groups, ha ha ha, isn't that funny that somehow we're still one? It it it, this this is going to become maddening. He's only he's only got a little bit of time left. I don't know if he's going to ever articulate exactly what this unity is. He's got he's got. Well, let, let's just see. Let's see how far he gets. Here we go. Catches the surface. There's a, a book called the Handbook of Denominations that lists hundreds more. I've seen a sign from a the front of an Arkansas church that advertises the church this way. They said this is the strict and particular Reforming Baptist non-instrumental. Closed communion, King James only community church. <laughs> and I wonder how big a community can that possibly be? <laughs> but you have to ask are all these denominational tags really necessary? And, and let's be honest, we can hardly blame non Christians for being bewildered and, and turned off by the variety. The pagan from a non Christian society isn't likely to look at Christendom and denominationalism and say, you know, behold how they love one another. Jesus expressly prayed for unity, and and that makes disunity, and especially deliberate divisiveness of any kind, a truly serious sin. That's the danger of division, and it's a danger whose evil we should never minimize or underestimate. But there's a flip side to that truth. Let's call it the duty of separation. The duty of separation. Alongside Christ's prayer for division, we have Christ's rebukes in Revelation 2 against churches and believers in churches who refuse to separate from false teachers and and people who are corrupting the gospel. We who are Christians must understand that Christendom is not the church. All who call themselves Christians are not true followers of Christ. And there are probably more false Christians today than there ever have been in the history of the world. And there's no reason we should try to make unbelievers think that all varieties of so-called Christianity are truly Christian. That's not the goal of unity, to make the world think that, yeah, even though we disagree fundamentally on who Christ is and what he taught, we're all one in, in him. We're not. And we shouldn't 
feel it's our obligation to make the world think that, to assume that everyone who calls himself a Christian really is our brother and sister is the very sin Jesus condemned. So there's more false believers than at any time in, I guess, in the history of the world. So, hey, it's it's wrong to be divided because disunity is bad. However, we, we have to realize there's more false believers than at any time. And we have to, we have to uh, separate ourselves from the false brethren. So we, disunity is bad, but you got to separate yourself from the false brethren. And who gets to determine who's the false brethren? Who gets to determine that? Oh, guess what? Each individual gets to determine who the false brethren is. So I don't know how this is supposedly going to create any. So, hey, there's unity, but you've got to separate yourself from false brother, false brethren. Who's the and how many false brethren are there? Well, there's more false brethren than at any time in history. Okay, I I still don't know how this is supposed to bring any form of unity at all. Now, this just makes me call into question everyone, right? If there's if there's that many false brethren, then who who is the real brethren? I don't know. I don't know. Everyone now is viewed with a lens of a suspicion. Everyone is viewed with a little bit of paranoia. I don't know about you. 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 I don't. Oh, and I'm supposed to separate myself from you. Okay, so. How many people do I separate myself from? Yeah, somehow we're supposed to know exactly who is false and they are everywhere. Exactly. Hey, so, hey, Jesus says be one and this being and this unity is extremely important because this unity is how we prove to the world the truth of the gospel. However, oh, and, and you should do nothing to promote disunity, but just realize that you're supposed to know exactly who is the true and who is the false, and the false are everywhere. Everywhere you look are false brethren, and you've got to separate yourself from them. But hey, Jesus said that we are to be one. I don't even know how this is supposed to tell me what Christian unity is. This just leads me into going, you know what? I don't know who's saved. I'm just going to separate myself from everyone. Me, myself, my Bible, we're good to go. That, 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 that's really where this is leading. Let, let's see if he offers any clarification here. And he wrote, for example, to the church in Pergamum. In Revelation 2, verses 14 and 15, they had not separated themselves from those who followed the error of Balaam or from those who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans and to the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia where they had to contend with religious groups who made false claims. Jesus pronounced those false religious groups synagogues of Satan. And they were groups that would have said, yeah, we're Christians, we're the true Christians. Jesus said they're synagogues of Satan. That's in Revelation 2 chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9. He says it twice. So just because a church calls itself Christian doesn't mean that it's part of the body of Christ. Of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, at least one was totally apostate already, and three or four others were in the process of apostatizing, and Christ threatened to remove their candlesticks, meaning he wouldn't recognize them as true churches. We know from his warning to the church at Laodicea, that it's possible for a church to abandon the truth so completely that Christ will reject that church and in his own words, spew them out of his mouth. And so true Christians are not obliged to fellowship with apostate groups like that. 
2 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 17 says, What accord has Christ with Belial? Or, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. First Corinthians 5.11 says, Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That is, if he calls himself a brother. He's not saying, go out of the world and sever your relationships with everybody. If someone pretends to be a Christian and is not, then our duty towards them is different. There are times when it's necessary, when we have a, a spiritual duty to separate rather than seek unity with people who call themselves Christians. And one of those times is when they depart from some vital doctrine of Scripture. Second Thessalonians 3.14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Paul says, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Romans 16.17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. So some degree of doctrinal purity is a valid prerequisite for organizational unity. It's simply wrong to set aside our doctrinal differences for the sake of an artificial organizational unity, to join in a big conglomerate like the Roman Catholic Church especially. And this is particularly true of those doctrinal issues that are immediately germane to the gospel. And in fact, the Apostle Paul taught that so-called Christians who corrupt or compromise the total freeness of justification are not to be regarded as brethren at all. He pronounced a, a double curse on them in Galatians 1. I've referred to this many times, so if you're a regular in grace life, you're aware of this principle where Paul says in Galatians 1, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he says it twice in a row. He says it's true even if it's an angel or an apostle. Let him be accursed. And the apostle John taught the same thing in 2 John. I intend to preach on this subject next week. 2 John verses 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward." Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Notice, he makes it hinge on the teaching, far from saying we should set aside our doctrinal differences in order to achieve unity. The Apostle John is saying, True unity is determined by our shared commitment to some basic truths, starting with the truth of the gospel. And since the major point at issue between Protestants and Catholic or Orthodox traditions is the gospel, and particularly the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the very point Paul wrote to defend in his letter to the Galatians, it's naive in the extreme to think that a show of external unity should take precedence over our doctrinal differences. It's tantamount to saying Christians aren't supposed to be concerned with truth at all, and we know that's not the fact. 
And that brings up a third vital point. We'll call it the deceptiveness of false unity. Deceptiveness of false unity. Okay, now so far we still don't know what this unity supposedly is. We know that, hey, we got to separate ourselves from false believers and we've got to stand for doctrinal purity and whatever we obviously now what we think doctrinal purity is, is what we're going to say is the right doctrine. And if you don't go along with our doctrine, then we're going to separate ourselves from you. This, this just shows you the reality of why there's so much division. It does not offer any explanation to wait. You said in the first part that we reviewed that unity is the, of our highest priority and number two, that we must be so unified that it, that that it's so visible that the world sees it and they believe in the truth of the gospel because of the unity in which they see. All, all you've demonstrated is, well, there, there's false believers everywhere, and we've got to we've got to figure out who they are and separate ourselves from them, and we've got to maintain doctrinal purity as we see doctrinal purity, and it, and anyone who doesn't go along with our doctrine, then we condemn them as not being well, possibly true believers. It, this, this just seems to not offer any hope of unity or even explain how we're supposed to come to any unity. Let's see now. He's only got a few minutes left. If he's going to really define what this unity supposedly is that we're supposed to have, that's supposed to be our highest priority, that's supposed to prove to the world the truth of the gospel. Again, the, the unity Christ prayed for in the church is not organizational unity. When he prayed that we all might be one, he goes on to expressly describe spiritual unity. Verse 11 of John 17, he prayed that they may be one even as we are. He's praying to the Father. Verse 21 continues, that they may all be one even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Have you ever thought about that verse? He says, Father, I'm in you and you're in me. How can that be? It can only be if they are so thoroughly united. It's like your cream and your coffee. When you put the cream, is the cream in the coffee or is the coffee in the cream? They're so blended together, it works both ways. And that's the sort of unity he's praying for here. It's a spiritual reality that proceeds from our union with Christ. Christ himself. So it's not an institutional unity. All right, so it's, it's not an institutional unity. It's a spiritual unity. It's just a spiritual unity. And so is this spiritual unity supposed to be visibly manifested? Because you argued in the, the first part that we reviewed that it will, this by the world seeing it is why all the world's going to believe in the gospel. Well, if it's just a spiritual unity, it's got to be seen. It's got to, it's got to manifest itself in some practical way, or you can't tell me that this is how the world is going to believe the gospel because the God, the world doesn't see a supposed spiritual unity. Hey, I know you see 9,000 different denominations. I see that all you see is that we argue and condemn one another and say that our doctrine is right and their doctrine is wrong. But I want you to know that we're really spiritually unified. We don't meet together. We don't, we don't agree on anything, but we're really spiritually unified. But again, are we spiritually unified when we don't even agree on who actually we're spiritually unified with? <laughs> I, it's like, I don't know why this, like, the, like, hey, the answer is, this is just spiritual unity. It's just spiritual unity. Boom. See, now, Jesus said we would be one and we're one. Who's one? 
Well, the people who believe, but you've already said there's more false believers than at any time in the history of the world. So who do, who am I spiritually unified with? Who? It's just some, just vague spiritual unity that's not made manifest in any tangible way. And somehow that's supposed to make it all better. Yet he himself said that the unity should be so visible that the world sees it, and that's why they believe the gospel. Well, the world doesn't see a just made-up spiritual unity. Likens it to the unity between father and son, and so it's, it cannot be something as mundane as, and as superficial as the homogenization of all churches under one earthly hierarchy of bishops in Rome or Constantinople. It cannot be that. Organizational unity doesn't guarantee spiritual unity anyway, and the proof is seen in the Catholic Church herself. Despite all the Catholic finger-wagging at Protestants about the lack of unity that we see in denominations, there may well be more disharmony within the Catholic Church than there is on the outside. Just consider. So it's the typical Protestant thing. Hey, don't don't worry about our disunity. You guys are the disunified one. You may look unified, but you don't have any spiritual unity. You're actually probably more disunified. That's just like, hey, don't look at don't look at our house that's on fire. We're going to point to yours. Don't look at the fact that we've got nine thousand different Protestant groups. Just ignore that. You, it's the the Catholics are the bad ones. Why are you worried about what the Catholics are doing? How about you worry about what's going on in the Protestant world? Like I, 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 Protestants, all Protestants love to do is just blame, blame the Catholics. How about you? We look at our own selves. What, what is the solution to the fact that we have nine, like 9,000 different Protestant groups and nobody agrees literally on anything? Consider the fact that the current Pope and the previous pope, both are still alive, and they are at opposite ends of every doctrinal and political spectrum. Catholics, for example, have traditionalist groups on the one hand and liberal theologians on the other. Within the Catholic Church are dozens of competing groups that venerate Mary or tie their identities to the various apparitions at Bayside and Fatima and Medjugorje. And, and many of them disagree vehemently with other Catholics about the direction that the Catholic Church should go. Numerous other factions and sects operate within the walls of the Catholic Church, and they all wage polemical battles with one another that are as lively and as intense as anything that ever took place between Protestant denominations, the only difference being they're all part of one big, massive, confusing organization. But it's not unified And you add into that mix scores of modernist and liberal priests who would like to introduce their peculiar preferences into the Catholic system, and you have a chaos of varying opinions that is at least equal to that of the whole Protestant world. Roman Catholic community is certainly more diverse than evangelical Protestantism. The simple fact... Catholics are more diverse than Protestant evangelicalism? Are you out of your mind? Protestant evangelicalism doesn't agree on anything. What are you talking about? Within the Protestant, unless you're going to limit who you're going to call a Protestant evangelical, 
right? But the, I mean, you'd look at all the groups who would call, who would call, connect themselves with Protestantism and evangelicalism. You've got everything in that mix. Some you've got it's a complete like this. this, this <laughs> This is how I will uh, describe this sermon. This is my my uh, impersonation of this sermon. Hey, don't look at us. Look at them over there. Look at hey hey. Ignore our our divisions. Just the the Catholics. They're the real divided ones. They're the real divided ones. We're, we're not that bad. We're at least equally as bad. Like how is that a solution? Jesus says be one, and we're like, well, the the Catholics, the Catholics. Look at the the Catholics are the messed up ones. Like, I don't, the, the, the real problem is not us. The real problem is them. Is there may be less unity of agreement among Roman Catholics than there is among Protestants, and certainly among evangelical Protestants. Even with a supposedly... And again, he's just making a claim with no way to assert any truth to that. They're like, like how, what is your basis of that? Hey, hey, Protestant evangelicals, there may be actually more agreement. What are you talking about? There is no agreement on anything within the Protestant evangelical world. We disagree on everything. It's just, what are you talking about? Just get five Protestants together on social media and watch them start disagreeing. Wow, I don't I don't even understand that. Like, oh man. Infallible interpretation of scripture and an infallible authority such as the Pope. The Catholic track record on unity is as bad as or worse than that of the Protestants. The lack of unity is a human problem. It's not a Protestant problem. It's not even distinctly Catholic. How much unity can there be, for example, between, say, Father Andrew Greeley? And Mother Angelica, just to name two of uh, America's best-known Catholics of the past two decades. Greeley is a liberal priest and novelist who once said on Larry King Live that he believes the Catholic Church eventually will not only ordain women as priests, but also elect a woman as a pope. He's as liberal as they come, or he was. I think he's dead now. Mother Angelica, who's also dead, was a traditionalist a Franciscan nun who used her television program to criticize other Catholic leaders, including Cardinal Richard Mahoney, who was sort of her nemesis, because of their non-traditional stance on liturgical matters. Do Catholic critics of Protestant denominationalism really imagine that their church embodies the kind of unity Christ was praying for? And in fact, with so many Catholics all professing loyalty to Peter's chair, but waging battles amongst themselves over key points of truth. It should be painfully obvious to all that Roman Catholics are really no more able to interpret their church's infallible interpretation than they believe Protestants can interpret Scripture itself. And clearly, an external organizational unity cannot guarantee the kind of spiritual unity Christ prayed for. It would be a serious mistake and, and a real blow to genuine unity to think that the answer to our denominational divisions is the abandonment of denominations altogether, and that all of us who profess faith in Christ should unite in one massive worldwide organization where we only affirm what we agree on. No real agreement would ever be achieved by that, and so we would enjoy no more true unity than 
we already enjoy. And meanwhile, the cause of truth would suffer a severe blow, and that would ultimately prove fatal to all genuine unity. Because the unity Christ prayed for, the unity Scripture calls us to, is unity in the truth. Paul wrote, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's 1 Corinthians 1.10. He didn't counsel the Corinthians to grasp for a superficial unity by setting aside truth and embracing the kind of artificial unity that's not even based on a common faith. And he certainly didn't order them to abandon their differences and simply... Now, I'm going to go right back to... Again, I don't think he's going to ever really define what this unity is. All he seems to do is want to just blame that Catholics aren't unified. Catholics aren't unified, so don't worry about our disunity. That seems to be the message of this sermon. Hey, we're disunified over here in the Protestant world, but don't worry about it because Jesus is calling for a spiritual unity. I'm not going to explain what that is. I'm not going to explain what that means. Just know that Catholics are really the disunified ones. They're the, they're the broken ones, not us. What? And again, when you go to 1 Corinthians, let me make it very clear. He says it's not an institutional unity. It's a spiritual unity. Let me make it, once again, if you say it's just some vague spiritual unity that doesn't have any real definition, really meaning, or can be even seen, that goes against his entire argument that John 17, 21, Jesus calls for us to be one because the world seeing that unity is how they will believe the gospel, then it has to be something far more than a vague spiritual unity. It has to be seen. Then he quotes from these passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that reads this. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. Speak the same thing is not some spiritual unity. That is a unity in doctrine. That's an actual tangible unity. Speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. That is a practical unity. That is a doctrinal unity. It's a practical unity that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It is a unity in thinking. It's a unity in judgment. It's a unity together. This is a practical unity. So I will argue once again, the unity that is called for is never going to be seen institutional as far as the entire body of Christ is. But in 1 Corinthians, that is calling for an institutional unity within that one local congregation. Every individual congregation, everyone within that one congregation should work together so that we can speak the same thing, that we're not divided among each other, that we're joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The unity has to be speaking of unity within a local congregation because nothing else will work. Now, that still leaves, even if you have individual congregations where there's unity within those individual congregations, you're still left with a mess of the Protestant world. But his argument is, don't worry about the Protestant world. Look at the Catholic world. Why am I looking at the Catholic world? If I believe the Catholic world is a false gospel, a false system, I'm, I'm, I'm literally look, trying to justify, this is what he's doing. He's trying to justify the disunity of the Protestant world by looking to the apostate Catholic church. 
So I'm going to justify the divisions within the Protestant world by pointing to the division within a supposedly apostate religious system. Why would I look to the apostate religious system to justify the division within the Protestant world? That doesn't answer anything. Place a blind trust in the apostolic magisterium. He was urging them clearly to work through their differences and strive to achieve unity in both heart and mind. Not organizational unity, but the unity of agreement and truth. And that kind of unity is possible only when people are themselves in union with Christ and committed to him as the supreme authority. For who has known the mind of Christ that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And that's the kind of unity Christ was praying for. There's nothing superficial about it. It's a unity of spirit. It's a unity of truth. And, and that is why, in the context of his prayer for unity, Christ also prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. That's John 17, 17. So, just to recap, we've talked about the danger of schism, the duty of separation, and the deceptiveness of false unity. Here's a fourth and final truth that is bound up in this prayer for unity. Let's call it the dynamic of spiritual unity. And here's a fact many people miss. To a very large degree, the unity Christ prayed for does exist among all genuine believers. And it's a unity that transcends doctrinal lines. All Christians are in Christ, and therefore they are all one with the Father and one with each other as well. Notice carefully what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. I pray so once again, it's going to go to, hey, so hey, so doctrine doesn't matter. All genuine believers, all genuine believers are unified. Okay, so we're unified. So which doctrine? So, okay, so our, we can have massive doctrinal differences. So we're, we're not unified in any practical way, but because you're a believer and I'm a believer, then somehow we're unified. And this supposed unity that nobody can see that isn't visible because you already said that we're going to have. And wait a minute. If we say that sanctify them, uh, 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 sanctify them according to thy word, thy word is truth. If you if you uh, if you state that the unity has to be a unified, a unified, if we have to be unified in truth, then how can there be doctrinal division? So now I'm a little perplexed. He he seemed to argue, hey, speak the same thing, believe the same thing, have the same judgment. He quoted 1 Corinthians 1.10. And he he quoted that we are to be sanctified in truth and God's word is truth. So if we are to be unified in truth, how can then we be unified and still maintain doctrinal differences? And if this unity is supposed to be so seen that the lost world will see it, how can they see it if it's just a spiritual unity that never manifests itself in any practical way? But we don't even agree on who is an actual believer and who isn't an actual believer. We don't even agree with that within the Protestant world. that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So he's praying for a unity that can be and must be perfected, but it does exist. 
And the basis of that unity is not a denominational affiliation. It's our position in Christ. God is answering that prayer of Jesus even now. Evangelical Christians worldwide enjoy far more unity, an amazing degree of unity with one another. And the kind of spiritual unity that Christ prayed for does exist in the true body of Christ. Okay, someone just said, okay, if it's solely spiritually based on being a believer, then church discipline for acting uh, divisively would have absolutely no effect and nothing to do with it. Agreed. Right. If it's simply a spiritual unity, then the disunity within a local congregation would have no actual impact on the spiritual unity because it's a spiritual unity that doesn't have anything to do with even doctrinal distinctives. So, so you can have your doctrine, I can have my doctrine, and we're still unified. So what's the point of, I, 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 this makes absolutely no sense. It's, this is what we have to do to make ourselves feel better. Hey, okay, there, there is a unity. Now, this unity has nothing to do with doctrine. This unity has nothing to do with divisiveness within the local congregation. This unity, this unity transcends, it's just our position. So if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, we're unified. It, it's never going to be tested. It's never going to be challenged because we, it's not, it has nothing to do with the local congregation. It, this just transcends that. You're a believer, I'm a believer. We're unified. Boom, there's the unity. It, it never has to be challenged. It never has to be tested. It never has to be, we don't ever have to meet with one another, but we have unity. So I, how, is that, how is that unity made manifest? Remember at the beginning of this, his whole point was that unity should be the number one priority of every believer. Well, wait a minute. This would ha not have to be a priority because this unity that you're talking about is simply a spiritual unity. I don't have to do anything to maintain it or to have it. Number two, you said this unity would be seen by the world and this is what would convince them to believe the gospel. Well, this spiritual unity is not seen by the world. It's not even seen by Christians. So I, I don't understand how this supposedly meets how this fulfills John 7, John 17, 21. Jesus prayed that we're one and dun, dun, da, da, we're one. We don't see it. We don't experience it. It's not manifest in any general way, but hey, it's there. It's there. It's just because in our position. Worldwide, despite their denominational differences, despite any denominational barriers, unity for Christ reaches over and transcends those barriers. And that means this prayer that Christ prayed for his church has not gone unanswered. The true church is not and never has been confined to a single denomination or congregation or earthly organization. The church is composed of all true believers in Christ, regardless of how they are affiliated denominationally or, or what kind of membership they hold in, in any earthly assembly. In fact, Protestants have always recognized this. Let me read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Quote, the Catholic or universal church, not the Roman Catholic church, but the true universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, that have been or are or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and the church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And 
by the way, when the confession speaks of the church as invisible, it doesn't mean the church is inconspicuous or that it's utterly hidden from from human viewpoints. It, it means simply that the precise boundaries of the true church can't be detected by human perception. That there are people who claim to be and appear to be part of the body, but they're not, like Judas. Others Perhaps people unknown to us are true believers and members of the body, and so the exact boundaries of the true church are not always easy to discern. But so we, we can't discern the boundaries of the invisible church. We can't discern who's in it. We can't discern who's not in it. But somehow this unity is supposed to prove to the world that the gospel is true. How does that unity prove anything? Nobody can see it. Nobody knows where it begins. Nobody knows where it ends. We don't even agree on who's in it. Let me, once again, I'm going to continue to return to this because it drives me absolutely crazy. We'll see there's spiritual unity. Okay. So a, a Lutheran, are they, are they a part of the invisible body of Christ? They believe in baptismal regeneration, put water on a little baby. Boom. It's a Christian. Are they saved? Are they saved? If you say yes, then you're telling me that salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Salvation is by water baptism. So are they saved or not saved? We don't even agree on who's in the body. We don't even agree who's a part of the invisible church. We don't even agree on that. But this somehow is, see, the prayer was answered. We're all one. We're all one. So, so then, then doctrinal, what's the point of doctrinal distinction is irrelevant. Who, who cares what doctrine you believe in? Who cares? Because we're one. We're just one. I, I, the oh, I'm going to I'm going to state it again. The invisible church concept is a, a I'm going to offer at least a theory. Uh, to me the invisible church concept is more of a Protestant concept cooked up so that we can have this supposed unity where we know no unity exists. We, we have to have some way of saying we're supposed to be one, well, we're not going to be one in one church. So that's over. We got to find, here we go. The invisible church. That's, that's it. That's the solution. See, it makes everyone feel better. That, I don't know how that makes anyone feel better. We don't have any, we don't have no way of defining it. It never meets. It never does anything. It's just some invisible body that somehow that fits, that, that meets the criteria. I think the only unity that we can strive for, the only uni- unity we can fight for, the only unity that means anything in any meaningful, tangible way is the unity found first and foremost within each local individual church. And number two, then whatever unity we can have with fellow believers that we meet by demonstrating maybe, you know, uh, love for one another, mercy, grace, compassion. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't disagree because we have to disagree and we have to stand for doctrinal truth. We have to. But this is an idea that, hey, there's a unity. We don't really know where it starts. We don't know where, where, where it ends. We don't really know who's in it. We don't really know who's not in it. But hey, rest assured, when Jesus prayed that we're one, see, he, it's, it's happening. 
It, it doesn't mean anything in any meaningful way, but it's happening. And I don't, I still don't know why he doesn't realize how he's contradicted himself because he himself is the one who said the unity is what proves to the world the truth of the gospel. Well, the unity that you're now putting forth, the world will never see. We don't even see it. Genuine believers are all one in Christ, according to Galatians 3.28. We are united with him, and therefore we are united with one another. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. And in fact, during his earthly ministry... Christ told the disciples, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's John 10, 16. And the the one shepherd obviously is Christ himself, not an earthly vicar, not a pope. Christ is that one shepherd and the one flock is also a spiritual reality even now. Christ has made both Jews and Gentiles won, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That's Ephesians 2, verses 14 and 16. And by the way, when Jesus says, other sheep that are not of this flock, and when Paul talks about different bodies being made one, it's talking about the rift that used to exist between Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying that there are people who are members of the body of Christ in other religions or who who don't even identify as Christians. That's not the point of people who are not members of this flock. He's talking about people who were not Jewish, who were going to be brought into the church because of the gospel that breaks down that wall of partition. Now, the perfect manifestation of unity awaits a future time fulfillment when we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians 4.13. But in the meantime, to settle instead for some kind of superficial unity that is imposed by a monstrous worldwide ecclesiastical hierarchy, that's a serious mistake. The unity Christ prayed for has always existed in the true body of Christ. It's an organic, not an organizational unity. It's a spiritual, not a corporeal unity. It's, it's not a unity without diversity. If Christ wanted unity without diversity, he wouldn't have gifted us with different spiritual gifts. But the kind of unity Christ prays for is a unity that exists in spite of our great diversity. And the truth is, on the vital issues on the the doctrines that are at the heart of the gospel, there is far more agreement among evangelical Protestants than Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. Oh, I get so tired of hearing that. I get so tired of that cop-out. It's just garbage. Oh, within the evangelical world, there's more unity about the gospel. Is there? There, There's unity about the gospel. You've got everything from Pelagianism to semi-Pelagianism, from Augustinianism to Arminianism. You've got reformed. You've got, uh, you've got free will. You've got all over, oh, you've got all over the place. You, you, you either, no, you exercise faith. No, faith is a gift that God gives us. Wait, does faith proceed? Wait, wait, wait. Does regeneration precede faith or does faith produce regeneration? 
generation, there is disagreement all over the place. Do you lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. Are we elect or did we choose God? All There's disagreement all over the place when it comes to the gospel. Lordship, salvation versus free grace. There's not even agreement on that. This idea that there's just so much agreement. There's just so much agreement. And again, it's, it's hilarious that, that he's the one, Phil Johnson is the one saying that when his entire blog, Pyromaniacs, was, was a complete, like, attack everyone, condemn everyone. I mean, McCar- I mean, he's connected with Grace to You and John MacArthur. MacArthur has condemned, these people are wrong, and these people are wrong, and they're wrong, and they're heretics, and they're heretics, and they're heretics. But but there's so much unity, just so much unity within. I mean, the amount of unity within the evangelical world is just overwhelming. I mean, can't you believe how much unity there is? <sighs> Orthodox church leaders have in their organizations, all evangelical Protestants, all evangelical Protestants are in agreement on the doctrine of justification by faith, the principle of sola fide, and the authority of Scripture, the principle of sola scriptura. In fact, the school where I studied was an interdenominational school. My professors were Presbyterians and Baptists and Congregationalists and Independents and Brethrens. Students came from an incredibly diverse array of Protestant denominations. We all prayed together and studied together and did evangelistic work together. And our denominational differences were no barrier to our unity in Christ. Grace Church is a non-denominational church. Our members come from backgrounds as varied as Baptists, Brethren, Presbyterian congregations. John MacArthur is commonly asked to speak in all kinds of denominational settings. In recent years, just in the, in the past decade or so, he has spoken in Anglican churches, Baptist conventions, Presbyterian conferences, and even some charismatic groups. We do enjoy tremendous unity with all those who truly love Christ and are faithful to His Word, regardless of our denominational differences. And the limits on transdenominational unity are are set by Scripture itself. We cannot welcome into our circle of fellowship people who deny truths that are essential to the gospel. That's the point of 2 John. We cannot embrace people who affirm a gospel that Scripture condemns, that's the point of Galatians 1, the gospel and all the truths that are essential to it are therefore non-negotiable points of doctrine, and unity on those matters is a prerequisite to any other kind of unity. But there's nothing inherently sinful with holding denominational convictions on secondary issues, things we might disagree about, but it doesn't affect our fundamental unity. Denominations in and of themselves are not necessarily an obstacle to the unity Christ prayed for, and Protestants shouldn't be bullied into conceding otherwise. Now, of course, when denominational convictions on secondary issues are used to promote strife and hostility between brothers and sisters in Christ, that is sectarianism. It's the very attitude Paul condemned in Corinth when those believers were dividing into groups that were loyal to Paul and Apollos and Cephas and refusing fellowship to members of competing groups, that kind of sectarianism is sinfully divisive, but it's not a necessary result of denominations. And those of us with broad denominational associations and close friendships in Christ that transcend denominational barriers, we are living proof of that. 
there is room for brethren to disagree within the bonds of unity. And sometimes those disagreements can be sharp. You see that in Acts 15, verses 36 to 39, where Paul actually had a disagreement with a close brother. And in fact, it's unlikely that there are any two Christians anywhere who will agree completely on the meaning of every passage of Scripture. Unity doesn't mean that we have to agree with every point of truth or else discard that truth. But unity means that we seek like-mindedness with one another. And it should be clear that truth is not antithetical to the unity Christ prayed for. And in fact, a shared commitment to certain truths is the only basis for unity that he was seeking. In fact, go back to John 17 if, you're, if you've turned away from it. We'll close with this. Notice what Christ says about those whom he prays for. They have kept the word of God, verse 6. They affirm that his teaching... Someone just said, um, if it's spiritual, they say, no, no. If it's spiritual alone, based on our position, people being divisive has nothing to do with it. Exactly. If it's just spiritual alone, then all this other stuff is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. None of it actually matters because we're, we're supposedly spiritually unified. We're supposedly spiritually unified just because you're a believer and I'm a believer and it doesn't matter. You believe in infant baptism? So what? You believe you can lose your salvation? So what? You believe in election? So what? You believe in free will? Who cares? You believe in speaking in tongues? Who cares? You believe God's giving you divine revelation? Who cares? Because none of it actually matters because it's just a spiritual unity. Now, we know that in reality, he doesn't believe that because he's fought and argued and condemned people from all kinds of theological backgrounds. Him and MacArthur both have. They would argue that if you reject a lordship view of salvation, that you possibly you teach a false gospel and easy believism, and you're possibly not saved. Now, I think you should stand for doctrinal truth. But I just think that you can't just arbitrarily just on one hand go, but, 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 but there's a spiritual unity, a spiritual unity that we don't even agree on who we are spiritually unified with because we don't even agree on who's in the body of Christ or who's not in the body of Christ. So this is just like, hey, hey, you know, all of these, we, we can have all of this divisiveness and somehow we're still unified. Now, now in my next sermon, I may tell you that those people over there are not actually in the body of Christ, but hey, but there's spiritual unity somehow, somehow, somehow. And his words are the words of God, verses 7 and 8. They believe that he was sent by God, verse 8. They are not of the world in the same way that Christ is not of the world, verses 14 and 16. And they are being sanctified in and through the church, verses 17 and and 19. And notice too that our Lord explicitly limits this high priestly prayer to the disciples and those who would believe because of their word. He's not praying for the rest of the world. In fact, the rest of the world, including Judas, who professed faith in Christ, he pointedly excludes from this prayer. Verse 9, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but, on, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And in verse 12, he notes that Judas perished so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So Judas wasn't included in this prayer for unity. He was expressly excluded. It should be clear that the prayers for unity in John 17 are grounded in the assumption that those whom Christ prays for 
have a shared commitment to fundamental truths about Christ and the gospel. Doctrine cannot be swept aside in our quest for unity. And unity per se never, ever takes primacy over truth. As James wrote, the wisdom that is from above is first. So it's a spiritual unity based off doctrinal unity. (laughs) We have to maintain the doctrinal unity in order to have the spiritual unity, but the spiritual unity supposedly can exist without the doctrinal unity. So does doctrinal, is doctrinal unity required or not? First pure, then peaceable. That's James 3.17. Let's pray. Lord, give. There you have it. I Supposedly, there's a spiritual unity. It never really articulates exactly how it exists, what, how it, it just somehow we, if we're all part of an invisible body there, that we don't know who's in it, we don't know who's not in it. And somehow this is the unity that Jesus prayed for is that, hey, I pray that they're going to be one in somehow some spiritual unity that has no bearing on anything. It, it's not manifest. It's not seen. We don't, re- we don't see it. However, this is the unity that's going to convince the world to believe in the gospel. This spiritual unity that cannot be seen, and yet there's going to be thousands and thousands of denominations, but yet hey, there's still a spiritual unity that somehow is going to convince the world to believe in the gospel, yet they will never see it because we, even as believers, we don't know where it stops. We don't know where it starts. We don't know who's in it. We don't know who's not in it. And that supposedly is the answer to the problem. (laughs) It's, uh, wow. We're going to have to stop right there. Newsif at yahoo.com. That is frustrating stuff. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. You can give me your thoughts and your perspective on this. So far, every email that I've received, nobody has a very good answer. It's like on one hand, everybody's like, well, we're unified. But I guarantee you, everyone who tries to argue for some kind of unity are the exact, I guarantee you, at some point in their life, they're like, I don't think they're saved. And I don't think they're saved. And I don't know if they're saved. And I don't know if they're saved. And they can't be saved and believe that. And they can't be saved and do that. And they and they, they can't. They, no, we spend most of our time telling everyone who is and who isn't saved. So how are we one? I will argue once again, the only way you can maintain any concept of unity is within each local congregation. Each local congregation has a doctrinal statement. You agree on that. You work together, strive together. That's where unity is tested within a local congregation. There's church discipline. There's working together. There's forgiving. There's restoring. There's picking each other back up. There, that, that, it's, that's the only place where unity can anyway 
hope to be manifest. It's never going to be manifest at the, in the body of Christ at large because everyone's got their own belief, their own system, and they're going to fight. But within each local church, that's the only place this can even come close to being manifest. And I know people like the invisible church concept to make them feel better, but it's only within each local congregation is the only way spiritual unity. And then outside of the local congregation, believers who meet one another, well, we can strive to try to show love and grace and compassion and try to build as much unity as we can amongst one one another but that other than that there's no there's i mean i don't know what you do with john 17 21 other than that applies to the local setting the local congregation not the body of christ at large which is divided into thousands upon thousands of denominations and 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 i think Christians at large should probably look at how they act on social media because all we do is fight and argue with one another. I mean, look at, again, Phil Johnson and uh, Julie Roy's uh, from the Roy's report. Look at their fight, their public fights and arguments and calling names that, 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 yeah, no unity. So there we go. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. All right, everyone have a great day. God bless.